Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. Thank you so much for joining us today. Got a great one for you, and we have a new topic never before covered on Smart People Podcast, 200 plus episodes in. We are talking about the Costa Nostra, or the American Mafia, or say hello to my little friend. Okay, we're talking about the Mafia, and we have with us... George Anastasia. George is the New York Times bestselling author of the book Blood and Honor, as well as The Last Gangster. He was dubbed by 60 Minutes one of the most respected crime reporters in the country. And in this episode, we are specifically discussing his newest book called Gotti's Rules, the story of John A. Light, Junior Gotti, and the demise of the American Mafia. So essentially what George is covering in his book and in this interview is the Gotti family. Many of us have heard of the Gotti family, right? It's kind of like this American culture symbol. Same with the Gambinos. And, you know, that's what the mafia is. Well, what happened was the Gottis had an enforcer or a hitman called John A. Light. A. Light got arrested. He then felt that the Gottis were up against him, so he turned on him, states evidence, spilled his guts, or, you know, spilled kind of the beans, if you will. And in his testimony, he provides, and in interviews, he provides some really inside information. And so we get to hear that this week from George. So we're going to get into the interview here. Be sure to hit us up on Twitter at SmartPeoplePod. Let us know what you think. And as always, you can find us at SmartPeoplePodcast.com. Dot com. Happy holidays. Don't forget this holiday season to use our Amazon banner, or you can just type in smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. We get a kickback for anything you buy. No cost to you. Just a way of supporting the show. 
Thank you all for listening. Here it is, an interview with George Anastasia as we discuss the demise of the American Mafia. All right. Well, George, first, I just want to say thanks so much uh, for being on the show. I'm excited. As I mentioned beforehand, I don't know much about the mafia. I've seen the movies. It seems interesting, but uh, I can't wait to learn a little bit more. No, no. Looking forward to it. And, and most people's frame of reference is, is the movies. Yeah. And it's kind of a distorted picture of what this is really about. Well, let's start there, actually, because um, that is most people's, right? You know, we've seen Tony Montana and we've seen, you know, uh, The Godfather and all that. What is it that most people don't understand about the reality behind the mafia? Well, the, the bottom line is these guys are, are criminals, they're gangsters and they're thugs. And it's not about honor and loyalty. It's treachery and deceit. That's the way they've, they've always operated. You know, if, if there ever were men of honor, and I'm not sure if they ever existed, but if there ever were, probably was two or three generations ago when the American mafia first arrived, you know, with the immigrants in the, in the 1910s and 1920s. And you can make an argument that there were guys back then, guys like well, I'm in Philadelphia, Angelo Bruno in Philadelphia, Carlo Gambino in New York. In another time, in another place, they probably could have been the CEO of a company, but they're Italian immigrants. Doors are closed to them, and so they choose uh, to become part of the mafia. It, it's not to justify their choice, but just to explain it. And they rose to the top of their, their profession, so to speak. Second and third generation Italian Americans today, the best and the brightest are doctors, lawyers, and educators. And so the mob is scraping the bottom of the gene pool. So you don't have the same level of sophistication and intelligence, and you've got a lot more thuggery and violence. And, and I think the movies and books. I mean, the Godfather movies are, are wonderful cinema. Mario Puzo's book, The Godfather, was was great. But I think it tended to glamorize these guys and, and give them more nobility than they actually had. Yeah. And I know that's kind of one of the one of the many things you talk about in your book. The book, by the way, is Gotti's Rules, the story of John Elite, Junior Gotti, and the demise of the American Mafia. And you definitely kind of poke some holes in the way we look at these, especially the big families like Gotti and Gambino. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I set out to do, you know, I've written, I guess, four or five books about the Philadelphia crime family. This is the first time I've written about New York. And and New York gave me a bigger stage to, to play on, which I was happy about. But I, I wanted the book to kind of deconstruct both the myth of the, the mafia and, more importantly, the myth of the Gottis. You know, John Gotti Sr. was the face of the American mafia in the, in the 1980s and 1990s. And he, he was the Teflon Don and he was on page sixes and, and on page one, you know, he was a celebrity gangster. Um, but the real story of who he was, I think we get into in this book through John A. Light, who was a, an enforcer for the mob. And, and it's a different picture. It's not the glamorized John Gotti that you've already seen in a couple movies. And we'll probably see in another movie that, that Gotti Jr. and his sister Victoria are telling and, uh, trying to get Hollywood to make right now about their father. So there's there's a perception of who John Gotti Sr. was, and I think there's the reality of who he was. And I'm hope hopefully this book goes more to the reality. Absolutely, and then we will definitely get into that. Um, the first thing, let's let's start from the beginning here, so people get an understanding. I'll I'll cover it a little bit in the intro, but you know, um, you've been doing this, writing about the mafia in general for, from what I can tell, about thirty years. How did it yeah. start? Where's your interest? And give us a little bit about your background. I mean, a couple of things. You know, I was a reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer uh, for 38 years. And when I first started at the paper, 
in the mid-1970s, I was sent to cover the, the dawn of casino gambling in Atlantic City. Now, a referendum was passed in 1976. The first casino opened in 1978. So I was based in Atlantic City, and part of the debate back then was, would legalize gaming? And they always, always called it gaming, not gambling. Would legalize gaming bring the mob to Atlantic City? Well, the answer was the mob already was in Atlantic City, but it became part of the coverage. So I was in Atlantic City for maybe eight years, that whole beginning period of, of the casino industry, and was writing about casinos, gambling the city, and about organized crime. And then I kind of segued from that into doing more and more mob writing and eventually became the organized crime reporter for the Inquirer. And I did that for about 20, 25 years. And, you know, I'm... I'm born in South Philadelphia, which is the you know ground zero for the mob in Philadelphia. My grandparents came to this country from Sicily, so I've got a, a kind of a an ethnic sense of what it's about, and I think all of those things uh, contributed to my ability to write about it. I mean, there's a fascination, but there's also you know this is the dark side of the Italian American experience. I, and the the older I got, and the more I guess mature I got in, in, about looking at this, and less naive is. The, the the American mafia has taken the values of the Italian American experience, honor, loyalty, and a strong sense of family, and they've bastardized them to their own ends to try to justify who they are. And it's not who they are. But I mean, that's that's my take on it as an Italian American. There is this fascination. I mean, it's it's clear by this the the success of the movies, and we'll talk about the Sopranos and things like that. What did you realize when you first got into it? Because I'm sure that there was some moments that you said, wait a second, this isn't fun and games. This isn't about, like you said, these really honorable businessmen who happen to do some under the table stuff. This is, you know, bullets and guns and death. Do you have anything that kind of kicked that off for you in the beginning where you said, man, this is maybe not what I envisioned? Well, there's a seminal picture that was in the Inquirer. Angelo Bruno was the boss from 1959 to 1980. He was killed in front of his home on a Friday night in March. A guy walked up behind him. He was Bruno was sitting in a car, and a guy pulled out a shotgun and blasted the shot into the back of his head. And there's this picture of Bruno, and it appeared in all the papers, uh, in the car, his mouth agape. And, you know, it's a death mask. And when you see that, it, it, it dismisses any sense of nobility. This, this is just, this is just thuggery. This is just violence. And this is who these guys are. And, and this is the way they operate. Now, Bruno was a boss for 21 years. And, you know, he's, he's known now as the docile Don, but only because of what came after him. He wasn't called the docile Don when he was in charge of the crime family. Bruno had a, a kind of a different approach. I mean, murder was a negotiating tool of last resort. When all else failed, somebody might get killed. It was strictly business. The guys that came after him, murder became a calling card. So it was kind of a, if you will, a deterioration of the, the value system. But the value system in and of itself is about, you know, murder and taking a human life is just comes with the territory. It's part of who they are and what they're about. Right. So, you know, that that was kind of a, a hoo-ha moment for me. And I'm saying, you know, this is not uh, this is not the Marlon Brando running around in, in, in the garden with his grandchild, you know, having fun this is this is evil this is sinister this is treacherous that, that's what it's about 
you know, and that paints this this picture, and I can't wait to get into the details. I feel like first, especially for myself and probably most listeners, we need to understand when you talk about the mob, especially these guys you're talking about, Dons and different ones and bosses in New York versus Philly. Can you lay out for us what it even means? Like, what is the structure? How is it geographically based? What do they do in their business? Kind of so we can kind of get a quick 101 of, I guess, the mafia. I mean, the American Mafia, Cosa Nostra, you know, it, it began, I guess, in the 1910s and 1920s, and it and it's evolved. But there were, I think, probably 26 American cities where there are there are families. Uh, New York has five families. It's probably the only only city that has more than one indigenous family. But a, any major city where there were uh, ethnic Italians and organized crime family became part of the immigration experience. Just, it's not unique to Italians. I mean, I think we're seeing it again and again now with Hispanics and with Russians, with Jews, with the Irish. There's always a, a, a small segment that gravitates toward crime. Um, the American mafia grew out of that immigration uh, experience in the 10s and the 20s, and they became dominant players in the underworld, I guess, through the 50s and 60s. And each city uh, has a family built in, around a structure. There's a boss. He's He's the dictator. There's an underboss who's kind of the, the second in command. There's a consigliere who usually is an older member of the organization who's had a lot of experience, and he's the guy who you go to to settle disputes. And then there are capos, capo de chimo, boss of 10. They're, they're, they head the crews. They're called captains or capos. And under them are soldiers, and usually a capo, depending on the city and the size of the crime family, a capo could have 10, 12, 15, 20 soldiers, depending on the organization. Uh, and then each group, crew, whatever, has a bunch of associates, guys that are not made, but guys that are part of the organization, you know, and they're, they're bookmakers, they're loan sharks, they're, uh, they're money makers, they're earners. So that, that's basically the structure in, in every city where it exists. It's, uh, it's consistent in that way. You know, I mean, one of the ways the government was able finally to undo the mob is they finally came to understand the structure and uh, the, the RICO law that was passed in the 1970s was designed to as- attack the organization rather than the individual. And it was designed to take down the crime family. So, you know, it, it, it's, that's the way it's evolved. And, and prosecutors were a little bit slow getting into it. But once they did, they figured out a way to bring it down. And that's why the American mafia is, is not what it used to be. And so if you're a family in, say, New York, and then there's another family in Philly, are they friendly because they're both obviously from the same, you know, they're Italian and yeah. or are, are even those at odds with each other? No, usually, usually there's a sense of cooperation as long as there's not a, a battle over the same turf. I mean, these guys are in the same business. It's like you know, you're you're in the in the uh, you're a butcher, and, and there's another butcher from New York, and you've got you know common interests, and you can talk about the cuts of meat or whatever. Same thing with these guys, and and they cooperate and they work with one another when it's in their best interest. Um, Atlantic City, as I said, you know, I covered that. Atlantic City was pretty much. Uh, open to anybody from New York that wanted to come down. Uh, the Philadelphia crime family let them in. That's one of the reasons that like, Bruno was killed. Some members of his organization were upset about that. But Bruno was pretty much laissez-faire. There's enough for everybody. And everybody was trying to glom on and get a piece of what was coming with the casino. So there's not uh, there's not friction unless uh, – probably there's more friction within the crime families in New York because they're always up against one another. Whereas, you know, Boston and Philadelphia, they don't interact that much. But when they do, it's usually they'll cooperate on some kind of scam or some kind of scheme. 
it's, it's really interesting because, you know, I, I kind of loosely knew about it. But what I didn't realize is essentially this is people who are coming over their first generation immigrants at the time. And they, you know, they speak the same language. This is a scary place. They live closely together. They don't have a lot of opportunities. And so they say, OK, in order to survive, we're going to have to do it through crime. And since we're so closely knit, I guess, through blood or relationships, we can we can form our own little army if we're smart about it and we can extort money, I, I guess. Is that a fair kind of? Well, I mean, that that was a story in the beginning, the early days of the mob. In, right. Uh, mafia in, in New York, the black hand. They were extorting their own people. And, and you know, the, the Godfather movie does an ac- accurate portrayal of all of that. Mm-hmm. And that's how Don Corleone becomes a more noble individual because he intercedes. But I, it's that's kind of a an almost a, an, an anachronism now because it's it's not the way it is anymore. And I think w- what you're seeing is, as I said, the Americanization of the mob. I, I talked to a police officer in Philadelphia not that long ago talking about Russian organized crime. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, trying to figure out the Russian mob in Philadelphia today is like trying to figure out the Sicilian mafia in the 1920s. They live in an ethnic community where, by and large, the, the immigrant citizens don't trust authority. They speak a different language, and they're hiding behind a different culture. Same same process. I mean, when the Sicilians and the Southern Italians came to America, language, culture, ethnicity were all barriers that they, they hid behind. You know, and, and I think the same thing plays out with every immigrant experience. It's not unique to the Italians. Right. Yeah. And, and that's interesting because I did want to ask, what is the current state? I know you said, you know, the American mafia um, obviously is dwindling and others <clears throat> kind of fill their, the, the gap left. But is it still, regardless of the ethnicity of those in the mafia or whatever you want to call it, is there always somebody just taking the place? Is it at the same level as it used to be? Well, yeah, there's, there's money to be made. And as long as there's money to be made, somebody's going to be out there making it. Now, the, the mob, when they were smart, they stayed primarily in uh, sports betting and loan sharking. And you can make a lot of money if you run a good book and if you're lending money. Um, and some guys are still doing that. And guys are staying under the radar doing that. What I'm seeing with some of the other ethnic the, the Russians play at a whole nother level. Very sophisticated, also very violent. Um, you've got black and Hispanic gangs that are into drugs. That's a whole different ball of wax. I mean, because there's so much money to be made, but but it's very very violent. Big guns, big big wads of cash. It's I, I think what we're seeing, and you know, we may look back nostalgically on the '60s and '70s and say, you know, today we've got disorganized crime. Organized crime was better because <laughs> at least, you know they, they you know they kept a handle on it. Right. Uh, now you got all kind of gangs out there with big guns shooting one another and, and the public be damned. I see that in the drug on the world again and again and again. Yeah. So, you know, so what was interesting and, and, and you know, I've, I've tried to fathom this out. I think what happened was if you look back at prohibition and I think this is when everything kind of coalesced for the, for the mafia. If you look back at coalesce at prohibition, there was in the underworld, uh, uh, Jewish gangsters and Italian gangsters got together with, politicians and elected officials and basically ran around the, the, the prohibition of dealing alcohol. I mean, and they became, they became very wealthy distributing liquor. When prohibition ended, that, that organization still existed. And for, for the Jewish gangsters and the Italian gangsters, it, it wasn't about 
destroying the system. It was about corrupting the system and making money off that corruption. So you, you want to control labor unions. You want to control judges. You want to control, you know, industry. But you want it to work. It's important that everything functions because you're going to benefit from the function of those institutions. Uh, I don't see that with the drug gangs. The drug gangs is just about get the money, shoot anybody that's in our way, and let's get the cocaine out on the street or the crack out on the street. Even more troubling, you know, if I'm, if I'm talking to somebody who's starting out in the journalism business right now, my advice to them is you don't want to be a mob writer. What you want to specialize on in is terrorism. That's yeah. the future. Yep. And those guys are not interested in uh, the system. They want to destroy the system. It's a whole different ballgame now. So, it, you know, it's, it's a different kind of situation. All of that turbulence is part of the underworld right now. So the mafia is still out there, still doing what they're doing, not on the grand scale that they were in the 50s and 60s, can never be back to that level, partly because they've taken so many hits in terms of prosecution, and partly because the guys that are in it aren't as smart as the other guys. I mean, there's so many more opportunities now for Italian-Americans than there were back in the 50s and well, the 40s and 30s when this all started. I mean, look, look, you know, look at the U.S. Supreme Court. There's only nine Supreme Court justices, probably the biggest job in the world other than president. Two of them are Italian Americans. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can't, I, I don't, I still hear it from people, but I don't buy into the idea that, oh, you know, Italian Americans are second class citizens and they're denied opportunities. That's nonsense. That might have existed 40, 50 years ago. It certainly doesn't exist now. Now we pause for a message from one of our sponsors this week, an amazing clothing company called Basic Outfitters. Now hear me out, guys. I am not a clothing guy. I don't really pay attention to that stuff, but I'll tell you what I do like, some comfy undies. If you're going kind of all up against me or you're going on my feet, it better be comfortable. It better feel good. And man, that is where Basic Outfitters comes in. Did you know we spend 90% of our lives wearing socks and underwear? So at least, shouldn't those be comfortable, new, clean, not full of holes? Well, Basic Outfitters features premium basics at affordable prices in modular packs of underwear, socks, tees, and joggers. The created drawer feature includes up to 19 items consisting of socks, underwear, tees, joggers, and it's just $60. That's 19 items, new stuff, feels good, 60 bucks. And the best part is, it'll take you less than two minutes to place an order. That's faster than you're going to swipe right on your date tonight. So from performance boxer briefs to polka dot trunks, bacon and egg socks, and everything in between, there's something for everyone. It makes a great gift for birthdays, anniversaries, or the holidays. Go to basicoutfitters.com now and get $10 off your first order of $75 or more by using the coupon code SMART. So remember, basicoutfitters.com, use the coupon code SMART. Basic Outfitters, refill them drawers faster than you can find a Tinder match. I don't hear thing. I mean, I never hear Italians being second class. And I think it's just as America being this melting pot, right? You, as you mentioned, you have your your um, immigrants and you have yeah. these journeys that they take. And, and right now you're looking at, like you said, a lot of Hispanic and not that this is bad. Like, I don't want to put any negative yeah. connotation. It is just how things happen. And. I guess, like you said, when there's an opportunity to make money, and, and this is the thing I think that happens a lot with terrorism, and I, I read about this, you know, if they have an economy in place, if they have family, then they don't want to throw their lives away. But if they're, you know, denied kind of a lot of liberties, then they don't have anything to live for and they can be radicalized. And so 
if you know it's really dependent on the opportunity you have oftentimes and like you said we're seeing now that italians they're fine they've been along here for a long time you know what i mean no no i understand what you're saying i mean you can make an argument i mean some of these drug gangs in philadelphia you can make an argument that they're urban terrorists. Right. Oh, yeah. And they don't care about anything. They don't care about any who they're going to shoot. They don't care about how the violence goes down. And they expect to have a very short lifespan. And they want to live large while they're living. Which it's, blows it's very, my mind. I don't, yeah, it's troubling. I don't yeah. get that. Like, you've you've covered this for a while. You've talked to people. And, w- like, what is that mindset? I don't get people who are just like, yeah, I'll die at 30. Probably a gunshot to the back of the head. That's insanity to me. Yeah, well, I don't, I, you know, I don't think we've experienced the kind of situation that they're in to reach that point. I mean, and, and that's unfortunate. You know, you look around urban centers in America and you're going to find situations where there's a lot of despair and not a lot of opportunities. Mm. And that's what this contributes to. Mm. It's it's a different situation entirely. No, that's a good point. All right. So we got a good foundation. Now let's get into the fun part. Let's get into the story. Teach <laughs> me, set the stage. I Listen, all I know is Gotti and Gambino. I've heard of them before. They are like rock stars. They are the guys. I mean, you know, if I think, I don't know, 1950s, 60s, whatever in New York City, they're running the show. Lay the lay the line uh, the land for us. Who are they? What are they doing? Well, I mean, you know, as I said, there are five crime families in New York, and one of the crime families was the Gambino crime family, uh, named after Carlo Gambino, who died in 1976 or thereabouts, died of natural causes. Um, Paul Castellano was the boss through the mid '80s, and John Gotti Sr. And I'm going to say John Gotti Sr., John Gotti Jr., even though it's not, it's John. A. Gotti and John F. Gotti. That's fine. (laughs) But anyway, it's Gotti Sr. and Jr. Gotti Sr. is a a capo in the organization, and Gotti Sr.'s crew is heavily involved in dealing heroin. And there's a prohibition. You know, it's like the Godfather movies. There's a prohibition on dealing drugs. And uh, a couple of Gotti Sr.'s top associates were indicted in a heroin case. And it was going to come out. There were wiretaps and et cetera, that they were heavily involved in the heroin trade. And Gotti knew his guys would be killed on orders of Castellano because that was that was the rule. And uh, he did a preemptive strike and and he orchestrated the murder of Paul Castellano in front of Spark Steakhouse in New York, 1986, of course. And that that's how he basically seized control of the crime family. Wait, so, now, yeah, so, one of the so, things is, one, you know, there's prohibition on drugs, and, and it was imposed here in Philadelphia as well by Angelo Bruno, uh, by Castellano in New York, and, and Vincent the Chin Gigante, the head of the Genovese crime family. It wasn't that they, they were morally opposed to drugs. It wasn't that at all. These guys, the bosses, Castellano, uh, Gigante, Bruno in Philadelphia, they had more money than God. They didn't need to get involved in drugs. And they knew that you get involved in the drug underworld, and you're dealing with a lot of despicable people who can't be trusted. You got your own guys involved in drugs. Maybe they get hooked on drugs, then they're not dependable. So it wasn't a, a moral issue, don't deal drugs. It was a, a business issue. It's not good. We don't need the money. We don't need the aggravation. The underlings in those crime families, who some of them were barely making any money, said, this is ridiculous. We can make a lot of money dealing drugs. We're going to do it. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the backdrop. And, and Gotti orchestrated the murder of Castellano to save his brother and, and a couple of the top associates who were caught up in this drug case. And from there, he took control of the crime family. And he became the celebrity Don, the Teflon Don. He was on the cover of Time magazine, you know, had this image as, as this well-dressed, well-coiffed, handsome guy, the face of the American mafia. Now, what John A. Light says is everybody in the Gotti organization 
knew that drug dealing was still going on and anybody dealing drugs in the Gotti organization had to kick money up to Gotti. So he was basically a hypocrite. Don't deal uh, drugs. If you deal drugs, I'm going to kill you. But if you are dealing drugs, I want a piece of the action. Hmm. Uh, that's, and that's the way John A. Light says it played out. Now, A. Light's the principal character in the book that I wrote. He was, A. Light could never be a made guy because he's Albanian. He's not Italian. But, uh, you know, he became a major player in the organization, first for Gotti Sr. and more importantly for Gotti Jr. And there's a lot of friction today between Gotti Jr. and, and A. Light. Uh, Junior's written a book as well. And it's, I guess it's better that they're verbally sparring rather than shooting at one another, but they're, they're at one another, uh, over what's true and what's not true in terms of how things played out. So, okay. Makes a lot of sense. All right. So you have, um, John Gotti, he takes over. This is John Gotti senior. Right. right? And he's running the, essentially the New York mob scene. He's running the Gambino crime family, which is one of the five families, one of the bigger families. The other, the other big family at that point is the Genovese crime family, Vincent the Chin Giganti. And there's a wonderful anecdote about Giganti and Gotti. Um, Gotti's son got formally initiated into the mob. And supposedly Gotti Sr. is with Giganti. And he says, uh, you know, my, my son just got initiated. He's, he's one of us. He's a made member. And Giganti supposedly looked at, at Gotti Sr. and said, uh, I'm sorry to hear that. Gigatti was, I think, smart enough to know he didn't want his kids to get involved. Wow. Gotti Sr. wanted his son to be a part of it. And that's kind of the difference in their personalities. So John Gotti Jr. Mm-hmm. And uh, so obviously that's Gotti's son. And then John A. Light, who's right. the enforcer, right? Right. He's the hitman. Um, they're still alive and free, yeah. right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Gotti Jr., did I think about six or seven years for racketeering and then was indicted for uh, supposedly ordering the attempted murder of Curtis Sliwa, the, the guardian angel radio uh, talk show host in New York. Gotti Jr. was tried three times and each of those trials ended with a hung jury. Then he was indicted for murder and racketeering. A light was a principal witness and that trial also ended with a hung jury. And at that point, the U.S. attorney in uh, Manhattan decided not to pursue the cases any further. So, you know, Gotti Sr. is known as the Teflon Don, but Gotti Jr. uh, got some of that Teflon as well. I mean, these charges did not stick. Uh, And so it's fascinating. I mean, you know, you you uh, write about this stuff and you, you, you review the cases and the testimony and. You don't know what's going on in in, in a juror's mind. So I, I have no idea why those cases played out the way they did. But uh, Gotti Jr. was able to walk away, and now he's a free man. Yeah, he's living in Long Island, and a light is living in the area. He's he's he has not gone into the witness protection program. Uh, he's out and about. He's giving speeches about bullying and anti-bullying speeches, and basically arguing that he's turned his life around and doesn't want kids to follow in his footsteps. You know, he got enamored of that whole mafia mystique, got caught up in it, and it almost ruined his life. And he doesn't deny who he was or what he did. Uh, he just says he's trying to uh, change that as best he can. And, you know, you know, you write a book about a guy like this, and you, you and I think I say it in the book, you know, this is what he's saying now. Uh, Ten years from now, let's hope he's still on that same path. But right. You know, you never know with these guys. So tell me about, because he is the main character, John A. Light. Tell me about um, who he is, some of the things he did, like what he admits to, what his role was, and then where the the feud, I guess, essentially came from for him to testify against uh, right. 
John Gotti Jr. Yeah, I mean, he, he grew up in Queens, and, and he was a very good baseball player. In fact, he had a baseball scholarship to the University of Tampa. Spent uh, a semester there, but he blew out his elbow. Uh, had Tommy John surgery, it didn't work. So he went back to Queens and back to the neighborhood. And, you know, yeah, it's a point that I've thought about a lot. I think what A. Light did was he was a very good athlete. I think he took those same attributes that made him a good athlete because he's not a big guy, but he was he was a boxer and a baseball player. Very daring, uh, not afraid to take risks and always put himself out there, you know. And I think he took those same attributes that made him a good athlete and applied it to to the streets. And he became a, a drug dealer and then an enforcer and an associate for Junior Gotti. Uh, admits to murdering people. He admits that he's. Sh- he shot so many people. He, he can't even remember all the people he shot. He, he says he's probably murdered five or six people, maybe more. He's not sure who survived and who didn't. He baseball batted people, stabbed people, extorted people. He just was an, you know, a general practitioner of the dark arts of the mob and um, doesn't try to hide any of that. You know? And he says he, he thinks, looks back on it now and says, I, I, I have trouble understanding who I was back then. Uh, you know, he had a real penchant for violence. And I, I think what happened was it was that whole, you know, the, the thing that makes you a good athlete also made you made him a good gangster. You know, he wasn't afraid to take chances. He was out there. Now, he has a falling out with Gotti over the, over the course of the this whole, I guess, 10, 15 year period. He uh, believes he's going to be indicted and he goes on the run. And this was what was fascinating to me about John A. Light. I mean, I've written about a lot of guys who became cooperating witnesses or guys that went on the run. And in Philadelphia, when they go on the run, they run to the Poconos or to the Jersey Shore. And that's like the edges of the universe. You can't go much further than that because Philadelphia is the center and you only get too far, you're going to fall off. When Elite went on the run, he was in and out of probably a dozen countries. Started in in Jamaica, was in Cuba, uh, was all over Europe, and then in South America, and ended up settling in Brazil. And he spent almost a year living in Copacabana. It was kind of the, you know, the, the girl from Ipanema meets Goodfellas. And that's where he was. He was hiding out. He had several million dollars that he had socked away and it was having it wired to him. And he was bobbing and weaving and he had been indicted in Florida. And uh, eventually he got arrested on an Interpol warrant, fought extradition, and spent almost two years in a Brazilian prison. I mean, the book opens with a scene in the Brazilian prison. And prisons in Brazil are some of the most notorious in the world. So his experiences in, in, in the, the prison system are part of the story. But he said while he was there fighting extradition, he, he started to get word that, that John Gotti Jr. was cooperating. Many other guys were also cooperating at that point. But he said the whole idea of standing up for the family, he said, why am I doing this? There's no point in any of this. Now, Gotti Jr. disputes the idea that he was going to cooperate. But what we have in the book is an FBI document that that's a five page document that is a, a memo of a meeting Gotti Jr. had with federal prosecutors, what's called a proffer session, where you sit down and you say, if I were to testify, here's what I would tell you. Here's what I know. And none of that can be used against you. That's why it's called a proffer. Mm. But if a, if a deal is struck, then that becomes part of what you're going to testify to. Gotti Jr. sat down at this proffer session, but a deal was never struck. So Gotti Jr. basically is spinning it in about 12 different directions now, saying, well, yeah, I met with the feds, but I was lying, and I just was trying to find out what they knew, and I was spinning it in all different kinds of directions. I think it's nonsense, and if, if you read the book, you get a sense of where he was coming from, what he was talking about. But in any event, A. Light 
in, in, as he's rotting away in a Brazilian prison, starts to hear this stuff. Uh, he's planning an escape. He's trying to bribe his way out. All of that fails, and he ends up being extradited back to Florida. And once he gets to Florida, he says, what's the point? What am I doing this for? For who? Right. And right. He, he, he becomes a cooperating witness. Wow. And so at this time, okay, so he's in Florida. He becomes a cooperating witness, right. and, and they are trying to get Gotti Jr. Gotti Jr. is indicted, in, in, in originally indicted in Tampa, and Gotti Jr. is very astutely figured out they'd be better off if he was tried in New York and they got the case moved to New York. I think if Gotti Jr. had been tried in Tampa, the outcome would have been a little bit different. Interesting. Today's episode is sponsored by the Creative Pioneers over at Creative Live. Creative Live helps people unlock their creative potential. Their online brain trust is a great place to rekindle your artistic spark or dig into new skills like photography, design, crafting, music production, and business savvy. You can watch classes in their massive online catalog or come attend live and learn from the best. Experts like Tim Ferriss, Ann Geddes, and Alex Bloomberg will show you how to bring your A-game to whatever revs your engines. Go to creativelive.com slash smart people for 20% off any of Creative Live's classes. That's creativelive.com slash smart people. Thrill yourself. Join a scrappy community of creators today. And now back to the episode. Well, it's, uh, at some point, didn't a light find out that Junior was essentially trying to kill him? Oh, yeah. He believed that. He believed that, that. And that's what he said. One of the reasons he took off, he said, if I had stayed around, I would have had to kill him and about five other guys or they would have killed me. Wow. That's, wow. What, that's what it had come down to. And he said, that's why I decided to take off. And what's uh, crazy is for people that don't realize, I mean, this is not this is not that long ago. No, no, we're talking the nineties. We're talking <laughs> this all happened in the nineteen nineties, yeah. And and when did like so when did A Light get out of prison and when did Junior get out of prison? Well, Junior got out of prison in the late nineteen nineties and then was indicted in those other cases and, and beat those cases. Right. Uh A Light he's been out of prison now probably about five or six years. <laughs> I mean he did, he did about ten years. He pled guilty to racketeering murder charges, admitting his involvement in all this nefarious activities, murders, extortions, beatings. And because he was a cooperator, instead of getting life, he got 10 years. And wow. he did about he did about eight and a half. So he, co he, yeah. he cooperates. He talks. He tells his life story. He gets 10 years. And then they can't even get, they don't even get junior. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the irony of it all. Wow. He if, if you're looking at it from the other side of this, you know, the, the Gotti faction, basically says a light is a liar. A light doesn't know what he's talking about. A light never had the kind of standing he claims to have. And yet he worked a deal where he got out from underneath the life sentence by making this stuff up. Right. Now there's, there's a lot of documentation that flows against that. There's, you know, there's a light. John Gotti Jr. Was the best man when a light got married. And when Victoria Gotti got married, John a light was in the wedding party. Now, if he's not close to the Gotti family, Right. Why is he in the wedding party? Right. You know, I mean, those, those kind of things that the Gotti's either don't want to deal with or kind of, you know, just dismiss as irrelevant, where I think it says a lot about the relationship that existed and how it played out. It's in a lot of ways, it's a soap opera. And if they didn't have guns and were shooting each other, it would be, uh, you know, analyze this. But it is it, it, it's 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 dark and it's it, it's ugly. And a lot of people were hurt. A lot of people were killed. 
as this thing, whole thing played out. So what were some of the things that John A. Light, I mean, I know, and again, the book is Gotti's Rules, and you go into all of this, and it's it's weaved through this narrative, but I want to highlight from your perspective a few of the places in the book where A. Light really revealed some things that uh, we, we may not be aware of or we may not have heard I mean, otherwise. Yeah, here's the kind of thing, and you, you don't think about this, but they're very entrepreneurial. So at, at one point, uh, he... Gotti, a lot of different people have interest in, in nightclubs and bars in, in Queens and in Manhattan, right? And, you know, they're young hip spots, and, and every place has got a bouncer or two or three. Well, A. Light decides, let's, let's basically take control of the bouncers. He, in his own words, they, they unionized the bouncers. And they basically told these guys, you're going to work for us. We're going to get you the jobs, but if you're making 100 a night, you kick 15 of that to us. If you're making 70 a night, you kick 10 to us. And he said, it doesn't seem like much, but when you're talking about two or 300 bouncers working seven nights a week, it's a lot of money. So, I mean, it was that kind of stuff. That, the thing that struck me about John A. Light was he was very, very entrepreneurial. He did it with bouncers and clubs. He did it with valet parking. Same thing. You know, you control that and you get a piece of it. And it doesn't seem like much day to day, week to week, but over the course of a year, it's a lot of freaking money. Right. So, I mean, that... Those are the kind of things, in addition to extortion, sports betting, prostitution, drug dealing, all of that stuff, which is, the, you know, the, the illegal gambits of the mob. These were quasi-legitimate businesses. And then he took money and invested in restaurants and clubs. And, you know, he, he knew how to make money. Uh, so that, to me, I mean, it was, you know, it's the American mafia in the, in the 1990s, the entrepreneurial uh, second or third generation who say, you know, yeah, this is, this is our thing and, and we're going to. We're going to use it and we're going to exploit it, but we're not just going to shake people down and, and demand payoffs. We're going to quasi-legitimize ourselves. So a couple, you know, a couple of the bouncers balked. A light walked in with a gun and shot him. He didn't kill him. He shot a guy in the leg. He wow. Shot him in the show, you know, and he said he said to the guy, he, he uh, there was one situation where there the bouncers at this one club were balking, and a couple guys he knew worked there. He said, "Don't go to work tonight because I'm coming in." And he walked in, and one of the guys was there. He said, "Didn't I tell you not to come to work?" And he shot him in the leg. <laughs> just just because he went. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and you know, he, it's funny because I like John. And you sit down and talk to him now, and, and even he shakes his head about the level of violence that he was involved in. I mean, it's just, and then, it, you know, there was also neighborhood kind of stuff. He had a couple of friends in a, in a bar, and a couple of biker guys came in, and there was an altercation. And they called John, and John came to the bar with a, with a baseball bat and a chain, and he helped his, his two guys get away. And, and then the word was out that this biker gang was looking for him. So he, he, a light rather than waiting till the bikers find him, goes and finds out where they hang out, what bar in uh, Kew Gardens, I think it was. He said, he said, what kind of biker gang is in Kew Gardens in Queens? But he, he goes to the bar and he, and he confronts the leader of the biker gang. And he said, I heard you're looking for me. And the, and the biker guy says, well, who are you? Who are you? He says, I'm John A. Light. And then he pulls out a knife and sticks it in the guy's thigh. And he says, now you find me. If you come after me again, I'm going to kill you. And he walks out of the bar. I mean, you know, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, Bronx Tale was built around that kind of stuff. This was the life this guy lived. And he said his attitude was, you've got to be aggressive. You don't, you can't wait. In this world, if you wait, you're going to get hurt. So he said, I was always the aggressor. And, and that's the way he survived. Now, he took a lot of beatings, but he always got back up. 
And that's that's kind of what you would expect out of an enforcer. I mean, that's what you hear. Yeah. You know, that's just common, like in jail, right? We go up and punch the biggest guy in the face. Like, yeah. I'm look, I'm the biggest, you know, middle uh, middle America. Like, I <laughs> that's not my scene, so I don't necessarily understand it. But I watch TV and I see movies and all that. And that's what it is. What's crazy is, you know, you've sat down with these people, you've covered them for a long time, you hear these stories, you look at them, normal guy, and you just wonder, you know. How does well, this happen? That's survival. I mean, a light will tell you in order to survive in that world, you, you've got to be aggressive and people have to be afraid of you. He said, if not, you're going to end up getting killed. Right. And people were always afraid of him. He said, cause they knew, he said, they knew if they came after me and they didn't succeed, then I was coming after them. And so it gives people pause and that's kind of your insurance, but it's, it's a game of survival and not everybody survives. Right. Wow. And so, so now at this point, how is John A. Light still alive? And, and is is the kind of Gotti, I mean, look, you know, as you mentioned, John Gotti Jr., he's around, you've, you know, he's in, he's just out there. Um, yeah. Have they gone legitimate? I don't, you know, it, it depends on who you talk to. Now, they, they, as I said, Gotti Jr. and his sister are, are, are putting a movie together. Gotti Jr. has written a book. Uh, he, he claims to have made a lot of smart real estate investments. I don't know what his source of income is. I don't think the government knows. Uh, it, you know, how do they survive? The, the part of the reason I think John A. Light is alive, and he'll say this, is that not a lot of people like the Gaudis. And so even though he violated the, the code of silence, so to speak, uh, nobody's going to put their life on the line to avenge a Gaudi because they don't like the Gaudis. That's, that's A. Light's take. You know, the, the, the other side of that is that Everything is so high profile now that any, if anybody went after it, like the, the feds and the cops would be all over him because he's a high profile guy. And that's his, his built in protection. I don't know what the true answer is, but I, I do know from talking to a lot of people that when when John A. Light says not a lot of people like the Gotties, I, I think that's true. Yeah. So, and, and like you said, I thought about the pro, how high profile. I mean, if he goes down, there's one person they're looking at. And oh, so, sure. so it's like at this point, is it worth it? I also think I cannot help but to think about because so much of at least mine and I would imagine most people's knowledge of really, you know, the mob and whatnot is um, is an earlier time. Right. 40, 50, 60, 70s. When I think about now, like what would it be like to have Thanksgiving dinner with John Gotti's family? Like, I don't, I don't, I can't fathom that. Well, you know, I mean, I, one of the things that I found is, is you, I think you put these guys in, in, in a box. They're, they're multidimensional and, and probably, I don't know about Gotti Jr., but you could have a family dinner with, with some of these wise guys and it would be no different than me having a family dinner with all my relatives. <laughs> I mean, they come from the same place. That's, that's one thing. I mean, it's, it's not a, a, a stereotypical gangster. These guys are multidimensional. But, you know, you, you raise an interesting point about Thanksgiving and about one of the things I mentioned in the book is Gotti Jr. was formally initiated into the mob, a secret ceremony on Christmas Eve. Now, all over America, Italian-Americans were having the, the dinner of the seven fishes. That's their tradition. You know, that's that's what we're, we're about. It's it's breaking the fast after and Christmas is about to arrive. Christmas Eve dinner, the seven fishes. And, and that's the Italian-American experience. Gotti Jr., on the other hand, instead of celebrating the typical Italian-American experience, is formally initiated into this nefarious organization. That, to me, says a lot about who they are and where they come from. Huh. So they can pretend to be a lot of different things. And a lot of these guys, you know, they, they wrap themselves in the Italian ethnicity. But it's, it's a facade. At the end of the day, these guys are gangsters. They're treacherous. 
and they're not to be trusted. And they're not, they don't epitomize the Italian-American experience. They're not who we are. Right. They're that small percentage that is that is going the wrong way. It is, it is, it's a gang. It's a gang. And you know, yeah. when, when you, when I was thinking about what it would be like, we were discussing, I can't remember if we were recording this or not, but everybody's got a story. You know, anyone who's <laughs> Italian has a story, but sure. to have the last name Gotti or whatever, that's, that's a story. I mean, that is like. You, I don't know. I just, I can't, you know. You, know, you can't get away from that. And down, down here in, in Philadelphia, the, the, there was a notorious mob boss in the 80s, Nicodemo Little Nicky Scarfo. His son was named Nicodemo Scarfo, and now his son's young boy is Nicodemo. I don't know why you would do that to a kid. <laughs> the, 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 the grandfather and the father are both in jail for the next 30, 40, 50 years. And now you got a little boy running around named Nicodemo Scarfo carrying that same name as these two nefarious guys. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand all of that. And it's, as I said, it's a distortion of the whole Italian-American experience. Right, right, exactly. Wow. I, man, I just, th- you know, I appreciate you being on. I love this guy. It's like a history lesson wrapped in a novel, <laughs> wrapped in like another movie. And well, you know, I mean, part of, part of this is, and uh, Americans have always been fascinated with the outlaw, whether it was Billy the Kid, Jesse James, uh, Al Capone, John Dillinger, Don Corleone, uh, uh, John Gotti. There's a fascination with the outlaw, the rogue. And and we in the media have tended to, to glamorize it, but that fashion, fascination has always existed. Yeah, and I think, again, that's kind of one of the unique things you bring to this and the takes you have on it is it's a fascination, understandably so, but it's distorted. It's not to be glamorized. Yeah, it's, yeah let's and, keep it in perspective. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. And so... Um, that, you know, again, that, that's the book. It's Gotti's Rules, the story of John A. Light, Junior Gotti, and the demise of the American Mafia. You also you've written a number of books on on the subject, um, as you mentioned. So if this is something listeners are into, you know, check it out. We will definitely link to it at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Um, are you still writing, doing journalism? You know, where else can people find you? Yeah, I, I write for a website called BigTrial.net. And uh, I do a, a column for a magazine called Jersey Man Magazine. And I do a lot of freelance work. So, you know, I've got a big piece coming out in, ironically, in the AARP magazine this month on uh, aging mobsters. I think it's called the Medicare mob. What, what happens to guys as they get older. So I, I'm, I'm doing a lot of freelance work and, and uh, just keeping my hand in. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's I don't want to say... I enjoy doing it. I, I understand the topic and I enjoy writing about it, but I, I, I'm trying to make the point that, you know, there's a myth here and I, and I want to deconstruct that myth. Well, where do you see that? That brings up a good point. Where do you see your writing, your coverage going now that pretty much this subject, and when I say subject, I'm talking mostly about the American mafia, you know, is perhaps losing its steam or luster. What's the next uh, approach for you, do you think? Well, I think I'm always going to be writing about crime because it's at this point I'm kind of fascinated with it and, and I understand how the process works. But, you know, I retired from the Enquirer three years ago. And in the last two years at the paper, I probably spent more time writing about the drug underworld than mm-hmm. I did about the mafia. And I think that's where I would like to focus. I mean, I think we, we lose sight of the impact these organizations are having in our cities. And something's got to be done about it. And, and I think you've got to give a face to that. You know, everybody knows who John Gotti is. Nobody knows who, for example, in Philadelphia, there's a guy named Cabani Savage, one of the most violent drug kingpins that ever came through the city. Uh, Twelve murders, had a house fire bomb where two women and four children were killed. This guy's a notorious guy, but nobody knows him. So I I think I'm going to spend more time writing about that. 
Well, this is you know definitely a subject for another interview. But I, I, while I have you and we're on the subject, I want to ask you what what do you think can be done? Because clearly, the war on drugs is a laughable war at this you point. You got to legalize it. I mean, I, you know, I've got, you just got to legalize drugs. Yeah. I know a lot of people don't want to hear that, but you've got to legalize drugs to take it out of the underworld and make it. You know, it, it's you know we legalized alcohol. It's 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 no different. It's no different. Yeah. It's I, the only I, way you're gonna the only way you're gonna end this is to legalize it. Maybe you know what? That's got to be a. I, I'm writing this down. That's got to be a subject: the drug war. Because, you know, specifically. All right, we'll start with marijuana. I mean, I think it's crazy. I've said for at least the past decade that by the time my son is grown, say he's 18, he's going to look back at uh, marijuana being illegal the same way I look at alcohol ever being illegal. That's I've a given. I've got a good friend of mine whose 51 year old son is now facing 10 to 20 years in prison for growing 17 marijuana plants. For his own use. That's ins- I mean, that's that's pathetic. That's, that's pathetic. It is. And but then what gets what gets scarier is then okay, fine, marijuana, and then we move to the next one. How can you legalize something like not even cocaine, but take like heroin? And I don't know, man. I nobody has the answer. It sounds like you know. I th- I, I I think you got to legalize it all. Yeah. It, you have to. Well, for another day, again, George, thank you so much. This has been great. Okay, thank you very much. I enjoyed it very much. Absolutely. Thanks, George. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with George Anastasia. Don't forget, you can find his book, Gotti's Rules, the story of John Elite, Junior Gotti, and the demise of the American Mafia on Amazon or at your local bookstore. And if you do decide to purchase through Amazon, don't forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Using our Amazon link comes to no cost to you and helps support the show. So we greatly appreciate those that utilize that link. And if you'd like other free ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating and review over there. With the holidays quickly approaching, we're putting together our best of 2015 episodes, so stay tuned for that, and we will see you all next week. Today's episode was sponsored by the Creative Pros over at Creative Live. Watch classes and learn from the best. Experts like Tim Ferriss, Ann Geddes, and Alex Bloomberg will show you how to bring your A-game to whatever revs your engines. Go to creativelive.com slash smartpeople for 20% off any of Creative Live's classes. That's creativelive.com slash smart people. Thrill yourself. Join a vibrant community of creators today.